we move outside our comfort zone and seek new experiences to grow. We find adventure in the epic and the everyday. We travel to broaden our horizons and engage with nature. We are most at home in remote landscapes and faraway places, but never far from our community of passionate dreamers and wanderers. We are Chaconians. Join the Chacosphere at Chacos.com. Where will your Chacos go? This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape and beer production, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Patagonia. Standing up in my pedals, I dug so deep to make it to the top of the hill. I wasn't positive that my butt would be able to bear sitting back down on my bike seat when I did get to the top. But as I slowly heaved over the crest of the hill and saw almost a half dozen more massive rollers ahead, exactly like the one that I'd just battled up, I practically fell back onto the bike seat. Coasting down the hill, I tried to psych myself up for the next one, but the tent and sleeping kit and food in my panniers felt heavier than I had when I'd left the house that morning, and I couldn't seem to muster anything but a lagging granny gear grind. Cars whizzed by within feet of my slow and steady mashing. Men and women in suits and button-down shirts, speeding by on their way home from typing and making phone calls or having meetings since early morning. While I, on the other hand, had started spinning my pedals shortly after the sun came up. Dewdrops had splattered on me as I wheeled my bike out the front gate of my house. A giant sweat stain drenched the back of my gray t-shirt as the sun shifted high into the July sky. And now, an afternoon wind was whipping in my face, adding to the uphill and the downhill resistance for the last 20 miles of the day. I'd barely said a word to another human being all day, and I was beginning to wonder, what the hell am I doing out here anyway? Nine months prior, my grandmother, Marie Alda Fry, had passed away. Delicate, witty, relentlessly kind, never anything less than the perfect hostess. She'd lived with my grandpa on an acreage in Nebraska. There she tended her apple trees and rose bushes, decorated flawless Christmas cookies, and cross-stitched ornate little gifts for my cousins and me. By the time I grew up enough to appreciate her as a friend, I realized that I barely knew this woman at all. I burned with questions about her, about her experiences and her life, hoping to understand a little bit more about where I came from. But by then, she felt too tired, worn out, or under the weather to open up much. When she died, I missed her. My heart broke for my mom, who'd lost her mother. And I wondered, what of Marie Alda was in me? When my mom called to let me know that my grandma had left a small amount of inheritance money for me, I was at a loss. I wanted to use it for something that would remind me of Marie Alda, but most of my memories of my grandma were in the trappings of domesticity. Cooking sloppy joes, ironing napkins, or elbow deep in dishwater. Exactly the opposite of where my life seemed to be going. Almost 30 years old, I still rented a small apartment with a roommate, and I had hardly any space for heirlooms or relics. All I wanted or needed was outdoor gear. 
but somehow that felt strange. In the back of my mind, I dreamed of bike touring, the independence and the freedom of two wheels on the road, and I didn't have a proper bike for it yet. But I wasn't sure if that was the right way to spend the inheritance money, so I left it in my account for a while. A couple months later, I sat on my bedroom floor sifting through photos. I wanted a new photo of my grandma to hang on the wall, and I shuffled through a stack that my mom had sent, including a stash that I'd never seen before. I couldn't take my eyes off of a small, faded square print of Marie Alda sitting on a horse. With her bright eyes and glamorous bone structure, she looked like a Hollywood starlet, her curls tossing in the breeze. She smiled brightly and naturally, holding her first baby, my oldest aunt, in the saddle in front of her. I loved it because she wasn't putting a tray into the oven or standing in front of a Christmas tree. She was outdoors, and she looked so happy. There was something different in that snapshot. I asked my mom about it. Those were Grandma's happiest days, she said. Grandma grew up on a ranch and rode her horse to school every day. She only had one brother and lived miles from town, so her horse was kind of like a best friend for her. I imagined Grandma, a teenager, trotting down to the creek on her horse or galloping across the open range by herself. How free and adventuresome it must have felt for a young girl who would soon marry and have children and spend the majority of her time making dinner, sweeping floors, washing children's clothing, going to fundraiser events with my grandpa. All the kind of things that I wasn't doing. I could relate to something in that photo of my grandma, the young woman on the horse. called my bike mechanic friend and told him that I had a little money. Would he help me build a touring bike? Over the course of the next couple weeks, we collected the parts. We set up the work stand in Steve's backyard, and after a few hours, it started to come together. I came back the next day to add the final touches, my heart pounding as I finally wheeled it out front to give it a test ride. It felt so solid, steel, but still light and fast. I felt powerful on it and maybe even a touch scared. The bike's frame was 80s-style hot royal blue, a Kathmandu expedition frame. I loved it. The color reminded me of my grandma's collection of blue glass birds. Bluebirds of happiness. I dubbed it my bluebird of happiness. I bought or traded for panniers and a lightweight sleeping bag, prepping for some theoretical bike tour. I had vague dreams of month-long bicycle trips, but when it came down to planning it, I came up short of a partner. I was single, working in the service industry, and my only friends who expressed interest could never swing the same big chunk of time off. Still with no distinct plan, I perused the Army Surplus store for the last odds and ends that i need for a bike tour. A tiny camp stove and pot, a little first aid kit. I rode as many miles as I could on my days off, spinning giant loops around Denver building up leg muscles to the NPR and motorhead that played in my headphones. Spring and summer streaked by before my eyes, and no bike tour partner materialized. The hell with it, I decided. I'll just do it myself. No sense in waiting around. It seemed like a good idea to test out the rig by doing a mini-tour before biting off something bigger, so I planned a little solo overnight trip. I marked out a route to the north to Fort Collins 
I could crash at the KOA on the northwest side of town for the night and then head back the next day. If somehow everything went haywire, I could always just call up a friend to pick me up. I requested a couple of days off in a row and tuned up my bluebird of happiness. The night before, I packed up all my panniers, filled up my water bottles, and barely slept a wink. In the morning, I wheeled my heavily laden bike down the sidewalk to the street, buckled my helmet, and swung my leg over. It took most of the morning just to get out of the Denver area, but I rode through arteries of the city that I'd never seen before. I wove through suburbs, and then cornfields, and then more suburbs. The feeling of autonomy began to intoxicate me. At every intersection, I could go wherever I wanted. I thought of my grandma on the ranch and how, even though she enjoyed the open range when she was young, she had barely left the ranch before she married my grandpa and settled into homemaking. She probably never had the chance to experience this type of freedom. I felt invincible for a minute, until a guy yelled at me, his head hanging out of a window that felt inches away as his pickup roared by. The energy of the shout and the proximity of the truck took everything that I had to keep my bike on the shoulder and not spilling into the ditch. I suddenly felt so alone and vulnerable. Anything could happen to me. At the mercy of so many people and things, I began to think that maybe this was a terrible idea. I could be back in my apartment safe and sound. I started to question myself. But as soon as I started thinking rationally, I knew that writing on was the right thing. I needed to keep going. I needed to know that I could do it. But now my stoke burned just a little bit less wildly. Sobered, I laid into the last series of hills with which I'd earned my way to Fort Collins. And dinner. The ride through all the neighborhoods to get to the north side of town and my favorite restaurant seemed to take a lifetime. I'd ridden more miles than I ever had in a single day, 60, and carrying more weight than I'd ever ridden with. So when I finally sat down at the bar in Fort Collins... I ate that veggie fried steak and mashed potatoes so fast that the waitress didn't even have a chance to check on me before I was done. I tried to slowly sip my beer, knowing that I still had 10 more miles to ride out to the campground. I wanted to get there before dark, but I was not thrilled about getting on my bike again quite so soon. At the end of the 10 miles, I turned up the KOA's gravel drive and filled out my late arrival form. I felt awkward and obvious pitching my tent alone. No companion, not even a vehicle, just me and my bluebird of happiness. Laying down for the night, I hardly noticed how leaden my legs felt or how parched I was. My body throbbed with the thrill of accomplishment. I was doing it, but I also felt so vulnerable in my little tent there alone by the side of the highway. I tried to push all the thoughts of bad things that could happen out of my mind and read my paperback until I couldn't keep my eyes open any longer. It was a restless night, but unzipping my tent in the morning, the birds sang just for me.
The ride back to my house in Denver felt long and slow, but every mile felt like a little celebration. I felt thankful that I had the opportunity to pursue silly dreams like bike touring, and I said a little thank you to my grandma for leaving me my bluebird of happiness. I later found out that the concept of a bluebird as a harbinger of happiness actually originated in ancient Chinese culture as a messenger of a Taoist queen, who was the patron and protector of quote-unquote singing girls, dead women, nuns, and priestesses, women who stood outside of the prescribed roles for women in the traditional Chinese family. I wondered what Marie Alda would say about my little bike tour. She'd probably think it sounded a little bit crazy. But when I picture her on her horse, free and so happy, I think maybe we have more in common than I thought. My name is Hillary Oliver, and this is my short. Hillary and her boyfriend, Brendan, are planning to bike tour this summer above the Arctic Circle in Norway. You can find more of Hillary's writing at thegription.com. Music is today by the cassettes Kelly Ritchie, Chuck Hoffman, Hemet, and Chihuahua. The tracks were provided by Mevia's Music Alley. You can find links to the artists on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from you. Whether it's a pledge contribution, a story submission, a t-shirt purchase, a note of thanks, or allowing us to use your music on these episodes, you keep the diaries going. Chaco is our proud sponsor of the shorts. They just left on their summer Fit for Adventure tour. Go to chacos.com to track them down as they meander their way through festivals and events across the countries. Look for giveaways, new products, and live music. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, maker of a better bike rack, and from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. And as always, the good people at Patagonia make the diaries possible. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Becca Hall and Jen Altschul. It was written by Hilary Oliver. And I'm Fitz Cahal. You've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Diaries.